So we're in the book of Luke, and we pray together. Father, once again, we pray, anoint our ears, open our hearts, give us focus, and minister to us, teach us, lead us in the truth, and in faith and understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of Luke, um, every book of the Bible is incredible in its own right, has a very unique and important place in the canon of Scripture. This has been such a wonderful journey together in the book of Luke. Uh, Chapters 4 through 9 have a particular focus on the public ministry of Christ, uh, his miracles, demonstrating his power and authority as the Messiah, showing that he has power over sickness, over demons, um, over uh, death itself, over the elements. And while this has been happening, the disciples that he has called and chosen are watching this. Most of their training so far has been about the identity of Christ, for them to come to terms with who he really is and, of course, why he came. And we see this happening through the Gospels that slowly the disciples are coming to a clear faith, a sure faith. They are being persuaded about Jesus' true identity as the Messiah and as the Son of God. We read in Luke 8 that when they were on the boat in the storm, And Jesus calmed the storm. The disciples said, who is this? They were on their journey of faith. They were coming to terms with it. When they came to the shore and they met the demon-possessed man, the demons were the ones who clearly declared, this is the son of the Most High God. And the disciples were witnesses to all of this. After this incredible series of astounding miracles in Luke chapter 8, Jesus sends the the disciples out through Galilee. And they are teaching and they are preaching and they are also empowered to perform miracles themselves. And while they are doing this circuit ministry in Galilee, they are beginning to hear what people are saying about Jesus that some are making claims about him, that he is a great prophet, that he is Elijah, that he is one of the prophets risen from the dead, or he is John the Baptist, etc. And the disciples are hearing these responses. Some are believing in Jesus, and others are rejecting him, and the disciples are told to shake the dust off their feet and move on. This is what is happening as we join these passages this morning. Luke inserts the story about Herod, remember? Right in the middle, just before the the miracle of feeding the 5,000, we read about Herod himself was asking the question, who is this man? The feeding of the 5,000, which we studied last week, is in all of the Gospels, an all-important miracle, again, once more, in the most clearest and powerfulest terms, showing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. This was especially clear to the disciples who were the ones who were handling the bread, breaking the bread as it was multitude, and they were feeding the people. They couldn't believe their eyes as this was happening, and afterwards they would take 12 baskets, gather the fragments, and they were to consider the miracle of the loaves. 
because it would raise the question once again, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who can do this? That the storms would obey him, that he would multiply bread, that he would do miracles like this. And Luke again puts the the account of the feeding of the 5,000 between the question of Herod, who is this man, and Jesus' question, who do men say that I am? It's all very purpose, for this is the flow of this these passages, it raises this question about the identity of Christ. For as the disciples were coming to believe more and more, the leaders of Israel were becoming more and more hardened in their hearts in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So, we read in, I'll read to you in in John's Gospel, in John chapter 5, this is astounding, Jesus says, John, the Baptist, has borne witness of me, in verse 33. The very works I do bear witness of me, verse 36. The Father has testified of me, verse 37. The scriptures testify about me, verse 39. Yet you refuse to come to me, verse 30. These were the leaders, the Jewish leaders of the time. And then in Matthew 12, a parallel account to where we are now in Luke 9, and stay with me on this, this is an all-important, pivotal point in the Gospels. It is the official rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. It goes something like this. In Matthew 12, they bring him a demon-possessed man. The demon-possessed man was both blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. It was astounding. And there were the common people there gathered there, the disciples were there, and the religious leaders were there. Now, Jewish tradition said there are three miracles that only the Messiah will be able to perform when he comes. Number one, the healing of a leper. That happened in Mark chapter 1. Number two, the healing of a man who was born blind. That happened in John chapter 9, of course. And here in Matthew chapter 12, the healing of a demon, a man with a dumb demon. And Jesus cast him out. At this point, the response should have been, it is, it is the Messiah. And in fact, we read right after this miracle in Matthew 12, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out the demons. So the people said, could this be the Messiah? And the Jewish leader says, no, this is, he has demonic power to do these miracles. They rejected him. And Jesus responds to this in verse 28. He said, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And in verse 31, he says, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, he is speaking to this particular generation at this time, whether they would accept or reject the Messiah. And in fact, judgment did come upon that generation in AD 70. You remember when Pilate washed his hands and the crowd cried out, let his blood be upon our heads and the heads of our children, and that's exactly what happened. This judgment for blaspheming the Holy Spirit, rejecting the Messiah, when the Spirit, the Father, the Scriptures, and the works of Jesus all testified to who he was, 
would not be forgiven, but judgment would come. Yet individuals, of course, would believe on him and be saved. So then, in this same passage, a few verses later, the the Jewish leaders come back and they say, we would ask a sign of you. Can't believe it. And Jesus says, only one sign will be given you. And this is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And as Jonah was in the belly of the earth for three days, etc., he's speaking about his death, his burial, and resurrection, which was beautifully foreshadowed and prophetically predicted in the story of Jonah. He says, this is the sign you will get, the only sign, an evil, an adulterous generation, an unbelieving generation is asking for a sign. And you have had countless evidences and miracles and signs that I'm the Messiah. I'm done. The only sign you're going to get now is the resurrection. There's a turning point here. Though he was the Messiah and the expectation of the Messiah was to come and reign on the earth with a literal physical kingdom as the son of David, now the program had shifted. The kingdom would now be delayed and Jesus was now not looking to the cross, but he was looking to the throne. Now he was no longer speaking about the kingdom, but he would start speaking about the cross and his resurrection. After the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew records another account when they're on the, on the lake and there is the storm and Jesus calms the storm. But this time, notice the difference. The disciples don't say, who is this? But in Matthew 14, 33, those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. You see, the disciples had come to a specific understanding and faith in the Messiah. In Capernaum, where Jesus taught that amazing uh, teaching on the bread from heaven in John 6, by the way, that happened in the synagogue in Capernaum. And after that, many disciples went back and followed him no more. And Jesus said, there's the door. See ya. Jesus said to his disciples, will you go also? And Peter famously said in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And notice these words carefully. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It didn't happen in a moment when they saw the first miracle or the way they heard the first teaching, it was a process. But look at that. Now we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This brings us back to our parallel account in Luke chapter 9. Are you with me? Here we go. Luke chapter 9, and it happened as he was alone praying, his disciples joined him and asked him, saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answer according to what the people are saying, what they hear in their ministry, and they say to him, some say this, some say that, and Jesus poses the all-important question to them, but who do you say that I am? After all that you have seen and heard, how is your heart persuaded? And Peter makes that famous statement, you are the Christ of God. In Matthew's account, he gives the fuller account of the confession, and Peter actually says, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. Now, what does it mean to be the Son of God? When the Jewish ear would hear that, when the Jewish leaders would hear that, 
what, what does it infer that someone will be called the Son of God? I so much wanted to stop and have this conversation with one of the Jehovah's Witnesses yesterday, but I, I you know, restrained myself. But this is a good question for them in John 5, 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his father. Listen, making himself equal with God. When Jesus said, my father, everyone who heard knew what he was claiming. He was claiming divinity as the son of God of the same essence. He was claiming to be God in the flesh. And they said, we do not, cruci- uh, we do not stone you for any good works, but because you make yourself equal with God. Again, in John chapter 10. And I remember talking to a Jehovah's Witnesses about, about this verse. I said, what does it mean that Jesus said, I and my Father are one? And they said, well, it just means that they have a oneness. I said, well, what does the next verse say? And I opened my Bible and I read it to them. The next verse says, the Jews took up stones to stone him. And he said, for what good works of my Father do you stone me? And Jesus answered, and the Jews answered, sorry, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God, because you claim that God is your father. So again, some people say, did Jesus ever claim to be divine? Yes. Every time he said father, that was, that was inferred and claimed. Now, in Matthew 16... Let's go back to that account. It's, it's, the same, it's the same story. You've got Luke 9 and Matthew 16, right? So right after Peter makes this confession, Jesus says, blessed are you, uh, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And then he makes the first mention of what we call the church in verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, this is the first mention of the church. The disciples thinking kingdom, the kingdom is coming, the king is here, the kingdom is going to begin any minute. They understood Jesus was the Messiah, they believed he was the son of God, but they still hadn't quite come to terms with the fact that the kingdom was not going to happen right away. They were still thinking kingdom, okay, when's it happening? Even in Acts 1, they asked that question. He says, I will build my church. And he says, I will build it upon upon this rock. Now, if you're of a Catholic background or a Catholic persuasion, bear with me, this is what the scriptures bear out. Jesus was not saying that the church would be built on Peter or the, church or the first pope. He wasn't saying it would be built on Peter. The Greek word for Peter is petros. It means a little stone. The word for rock Jesus uses is petra. It's like the, great, it's like the rock of Gibraltar. It's different. A little stone and a foundational bedrock, immovable rock. Jesus was saying this. Upon this rock I will build my church. What rock? Let's look back to verse 17. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And upon this rock I will build my church. 
This rock being the very revelation of who Jesus is. is speaking about his identity. And anyone who would come to terms with that and put their faith in Jesus as the promised one, and particularly as their personal Messiah, will be saved. And Jesus says, I will build my church on that truth and that confession of faith. Now what follows this, because there's a shift in the program, is the first clear prediction of the passion. It's, it's in the next couple of verses here, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, that phrase is important. There's a shift, there's a turning point. He was talking about the king and the kingdom, but from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up the third day. Now Jesus had officially been rejected and the disciples had accepted him as the Messiah and now he starts speaking about the cross. And it's no wonder that these poor disciples struggled to accept this, that the Messiah King was going to go to the cross, that he would die, that he would be raised again. What does that even mean? Peter's response, therefore, is he began to rebuke him. Imagine that. Peter is quite bold, isn't he? Rebuking the Lord. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you, or this shall never happen. It's very, he's very adamant. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, speaking, addressing the mind and the spirit behind that confession. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. It's amazing that Peter's great confession of the Christ would be so soon followed by a statement that is opposing God's program and will. And then, um, where are we? From that time, okay, Peter's response, yeah, never, Lord. And then he strictly warned them that they would tell this to no man. Jesus said, I don't want you to tell people yet that I'm the Messiah. It would bring too much attention on him. He would publicly proclaim and show that he's the Messiah at the right time, particularly at the triumphal entry uh, when he comes into Jerusalem. So we go back to Luke's account. Verse 22, there is the same confession. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. And then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, listen, Jesus doesn't mince his words. He spells it out. He wants you to know what the cost is before you can really count it. He says to these dear disciples that have come to faith in him, that have become his followers, he says, listen, if you really want to follow me, let's talk about that. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Matthew puts in the word must here. It's a condition for discipleship. He must deny himself. Now, that phrase is much more than just denying things in the world or living in self-denial. It's deeper than that. It's speaking about the denial of the very self nature that we have, and not by my own willpower or discipline, but by faith and through the application of the cross in my life. Jesus says, I'm taking up my cross, and if you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross also. 
And notice it says, take up his cross daily. This is not a one-time decision. Oh, I took up my cross. and No, no, every day we are told to take up our cross. Uh, there's a quote, unfortunately, I can't give credit. I'm not sure who it is, but the quote goes, you cannot give your life to God in a moment, for that which takes a life to live takes a lifetime to give. It's daily I take up my cross, continually, repeatedly. And then he says in verse 24, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it. This reminds us of Paul's words in Philippians 3 where he said, I will, I will count everything but loss that I would win Christ. That was his goal and his purpose. Verse 25, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? Jesus is making this point comparing the temple godless purposes of man to fulfill the desires of his flesh and live his life without God. How sad and deficit that is when you think about that we were designed and made to know him. And Jesus is saying, oh, you could live your life, but if you, get, if you live your life, you lose Christ's life. But whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Now, in Matthew's account, it says, you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's speaking about Jesus' return, and there will be either shame or reward. This refers to the beamer seat or the reward seat judgment to believers. You will not lose your salvation, but there will be loss of reward. That's in 1 Corinthians 3, etc. You can read that. So here's the point. He's saying to them, the kingdom is not now, but let me encourage you. And he, he makes this statement, which taken out of context can be a bit strange or misleading. He says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, again, the disciples at this point would be, oh, wow, you mean, wait, there are some of us here who are not going to die before we see the kingdom, before we see the king come? But how, can, how could the kingdom come if he's already said that the kingdom is not yet? I'm going to go to the cross. He says there are some standing here. We come to find out in the next verse, that's Peter, James, and John. We'll see the kingdom before they die. And he's referring to this great event which we often call the transfiguration. In Sadly, in a lot of Bibles, between uh, this verse and the next verse, there's a break, and you don't, you don't see the flow between this verse and the transfiguration, because that's what he's talking about. So he says, in verse 28, it says, eight days after, he took Peter, James, and John and went on the mountain to pray. Peter refers to this event in his writing, 1 Peter 1.16. I'll read it to you. This is what Peter says. He was one of the three at the transfiguration. He saw it, and then later when he writes his first epistle, he makes reference to it, and he says, 
We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is what Peter says about the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received all honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mount. And the story goes like this. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. And, and Matthew and Mark use the word transfigured. It means transformed or changed. And his robe became white and glistening. He was transfigured before them. And then something quite bizarre. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. What? What? Read that again. Does it really say that? That Moses from 1,500 years before is now standing on the mount talking to Jesus? Tell me more about that. What, what, explain that. But it doesn't tell us too much. It just says that they stood there with him who appeared in glory. It seems to be reflective glory of Jesus. And what did they speak about? Wouldn't you love to know? Well, it's Luke and only Luke who tells us exactly what they spoke about. Imagine Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the mount. There is common knowledge, of course, in heaven now that the kingdom is delayed. Jesus is going to the cross and what do they talk about? Verse 31. And they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. His death. The word is actually exodus in the Greek. The word decease is exodus. Jesus and Moses spoke about Jesus' exodus. His exit, his way out through the cross and through the ascension from earth back to heaven. I would love to have heard that conversation. We don't know much more about it or how long it was, but that's what they wanted to speak about, of course. And notice the phrase that he was about to accomplish. Not that he was going to suffer, but he would accomplish it. This is why he came ultimately, that he would finish the work. And Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And then it happened as they were parting from him. So here's the picture. Jesus is with the two. They are talking. There is glory. The disciples are there, the three. They look up. And then they finish the conversation. Moses and Elijah apparently are just about to leave. And Peter says, hold on. And he makes a suggestion. As they were parting, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. He should have just stopped there. Let us make three tabernacles or shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Luke adds the phrase, not knowing what he said. Peter always felt the need to say something. Sometimes he was right on the money. Other times it would have been better if he just, just quietly observed but we thank God for his, his uh, story and, and life. So, let's build shelters. Now, this, was, this is Sukkot, 
the, the word shelter or tent. There is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths or Sukkot, the Jewish festival, where they would all build shelters through, through, by the outside to, to do two things, commemorate the wilderness journey and celebrate the coming kingdom. That was the purpose, the temporary dwelling to the permanent dwelling. And Peter makes this suggestion. Again, understanding Jesus is the Christ, still expecting the kingdom to come and saying, let's build three shelters for you. And, and while he was saying this, I love that phrase, while the words were in his mouth, right as Peter is making this grand suggestion about these, this mini Sukkot and build these shelters and let's, let's prolong this event. While he was saying, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now what's beautiful to look at this verse in the context of everything that we've studied together with the question about who is he? And the disciples saying, who is this and Herod saying who is this and the demons making a clear declaration and then the disciples coming to terms with the fact that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. If you needed any more final statement than this, the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son, hear him. Matthew's account says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Peter, this is my son. Hear him. He must be your focus. Matthew's account adds this. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. And Jesus came and touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, there was no one but Jesus. Amazing scene. Verse 36, our last verse this morning. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. How did they do that? How could you not tell anyone what you had just seen? In Matthew's account, Jesus actually tells them, don't tell anyone what you've seen. He says, until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is a secret until the resurrection. Mark's account says this. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. I love that little insight, don't you? Jesus says, don't tell anyone. They said, okay, no problem. The secret's safe with us until the resurrection. What's the resurrection? What does he mean he's going to rise? What does he mean he's going to die? But of course, later they would fully understand, particularly when the Spirit of God had come and they were reminded of all that Jesus had said to them. They, they were clearly able to understand that he had demonstrated who he was. They had been with him, God in the flesh. And thankfully, we also have that understanding this morning. As a born-again believer with your Bibles and your hearts open and the Spirit of God in your life, this is not a secret to you, but this has been revealed to you. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father in heaven and the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. We have been illuminated to this glorious truth. Number one, who He is. And number two, why He came.
and we're so thankful for it. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you together with, from our full hearts this morning. Oh, we're so thankful for who you are, that you came here, that God dwelt in the flesh, that the Son of God dwelt among us, that you went to the cross on our behalf. We thank you for the sacrifice, the payment, that we have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Oh, we're so thankful that, that oh, as the scripture says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised for our justification. Oh, thank you, Lord, for such a glorious salvation that we rest in our hearts knowing that we are secure in Christ and saved by grace through faith. But if there is anyone here this morning or listening online, we always love to give this opportunity. This is to you in your heart before God. If you are not sure of your salvation, Oh, in this moment, look to Jesus and say in your heart, Oh, Jesus, save me. I put my faith in you. I believe you. I believe in you. I believe on you. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and the Savior of all men. I believe that you are the Son of God, come in the flesh, and I accept you as my personal Savior. Save me today. May your Spirit come into my life and lead me in faith and understanding. And for each one of us here today, we just have thankfulness in our hearts for the glorious truths of the gospel, knowing the most wonderful person, Jesus. Bless us to our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.